I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 13th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about March Madness and what you need to know to be only mostly ill-informed about the 2017 NCAA basketball tournament. We'll also discuss the Cleveland Browns' attempt to bring Moneyball to the football player acquisition market and the Washington football team's messy firing of its general manager, Scott McLuhan. And we'll assess the hair in the Minnesota high school hockey tournament and the strange controversy over a series of videos highlighting those flowing locks. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. You're swelling with pride today. I am. For two reasons. I had good flow and played hockey in high school. Not quite the flow of a Minnesota flow, but pretty good flow. Okay. And two, my daughter played fuckers. In a Scrabble tournament that's, over the weekend. That's mostly what I was referring to. I figured. The, f- the wow. flow was implicit. Yeah. And she had choices because the K and the R were blanks. There are 18, 18 possible seven-letter bingos in that, in, the, in that combination of tiles. How much? She did... saw some of the other ones. Fucker scored the most that she could see. She so it wasn't for titillation. It was just a no, pure no, 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 value no. play. Pure value no, play. Titillation I... would have been a bingo, but she <laughs> missed it. Yeah. No, fuckers <laughs> was a bingo too. I was I was in a fabric store this weekend, and uh, speaking of uh, chintz, I looked it up, and chintz, they say C-H-I-N-T-Z is a plural of chint, and I was wondering if uh, that was an acceptable word in Scrabble, because it could open up a lot of things. Well, I think, I'm looking it up right now on merriamwebster.com, and chint is not acceptable in Scrabble, which means it's not entered into Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary or a handful of other college dictionaries. And the reason I would guess is that chint was the old English original form of the word, and it um, and, and morphed into chintz. Um, but chintz, C-H-I-N-T-S, is acceptable in Scrabble. So there's your connection. Oh, interesting. There's your connection. Thank, uh, thank goodness for that. Mike Pasca, I don't think you got introduced. No. You're the host of The Just. Oh. Hi. Yeah. How you doing? I'm okay. There's, right, there's a free event coming up that I want to plug, which is a free event. It's going to be here in D.C. on Thursday, March 23rd. It's being put on by our Future Tense section at Slate. It's called Can Technology Make Sports Safer? I will be one of the participants. George Atala of the NFL Players Association will be there. Nicholas Schmidl of The New Yorker. Ellen Aruda, professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan, and others. It's at the New America Foundation in downtown Washington. You can reserve a free ticket at slate.com slash live. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about our personal strategies for how to watch all the basketball on Thursday and Friday, the first two days of March Madness, to avoid burning yourself out. Or maybe you want to burn yourself out in those first few days. We'll find out. We'll see. Uh, Join Slate Plus 
It's just $49 a year. You'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. So the brackets are out for the 2017 NCAA men's basketball tournament. It's a great reminder that college basketball exists. It's a thing that can be entertaining. Your number one seeds are Villanova, Kansas, North Carolina, and Gonzaga. Your number 15 seeds are Troy, Jacksonville State, Northern Kentucky, and North Dakota. You can find out the rest by consulting uh, your local computer. The tournament starts on Tuesday night in Dayton at 5.40 p.m. Eastern. Other start times and locations available again on your computer. Uh, It's a play-in game at 5.40, though, between Mount St. Mary's and your University of New Orleans privateers back in the tournament for the first time since 1996. The privateers? The privateers. One and the same. Derivation? Jean Jean Lafitte? Yeah. It's a reference to their buccaneer past, but also their willingness to uh, take nationalized industries and put it in private hands for efficiency's sake. Very versatile. (laughs) So... One of the interesting storylines in this tournament is that if you look at the advanced metrics on KenPom.com and elsewhere, Gonzaga is actually a huge favorite to win the tournament. I think uh, Ken Palm had them around yeah. 20%, which is um, large considering there are 68 teams to divide those percentage points around with. But Gonzaga is not uh, one of the betting favorites. From what I was seeing, Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, your Blue Bloods, are right up there. Your blue uniforms, too. Villanova. So, uh, Mike, what do you make of that? Do you think that it's because we still have not recognized that Gonzaga is a a basketball powerhouse? Are there legitimate questions about this year's team uh, up in Spokane? Or um, is there some third explanation? Ken Palm ranks Gonzaga first and then a slew of other number one or top seeds. Uh, North Carolina, Kentucky, uh, then West Virginia. Ken Palm has Wichita State eighth, even though they're a 10 seed in the tournament and would draw Kentucky in the second round. I think, to go back to your question, I think the Ken Palm rankings, which were supposed to have been taken into account, but though they never quantified how, I, I see no evidence of that. And so the betting markets are probably, uh, I don't know, eschewing advanced metrics, betting markets probably looked at. I, I mean, you know, people who walk up to uh, Las Vegas and put down their money, they look at the fact that Duke looks so good in the ACC tournament, that they're Duke, that they have a bunch of players who are going to go uh, high up in the uh, in NBA draft and that they're best known, possibly their best player, Grayson Allen, isn't even one of them. So I see the appeal of putting money on those teams. And the knock against Gonzaga is that they haven't played anyone, which is, except for in the beginning of the season, relatively true. But here's my problem with that. Uh, You can't help if they haven't played anyone. But it was a good argument maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago. But who's the anyone in college basketball? I'm not saying these teams are terrible, just that college basketball now, you know, every team has, the good teams have a couple of guys maybe who will eventually be in the NBA. Gonzaga could have that also. So even though they haven't played uh, a quote unquote high level of competition that Mount St. Mary's, you know, doesn't count as a high level of competition, everyone else in college basketball is the highest out there, but they're not a high level of competition. You know, the AC ACC was a good league for however 2017 defines it, but it wasn't really a high level of competition. And Ken Palm counts how much you crush your opponents, and Gonzaga really did that. So uh, how I'm going to price it into my betting is that if I see, for instance, on the uh, ESPN national uh, pool that no one's taking Gonzaga in the final four. And I was just watching a bunch of these shows and very few of the experts took Gonzaga in the final four. I'm thinking that's a great value. I think we also have to consider that there is the continued lingering name bias in seeding teams in the NCAA tournament. I mean, Wichita State was 30 and four. This was a proven good basketball program. They were undefeated. What was it? Two years ago, three years ago, going into the tournament. And they, they made the final four before that. They made the final four before that. They're a 10 seed. That projects them at somewhere between, what, 37 and 40 in the NCAA's order ranking of the basketball teams. That doesn't seem logical. I mean, I was looking at the numbers numerically. You look at the sort of the major conference teams with a bunch of losses and where they were seated. And, I'm, you know, we're not – 
analyzing tape and and studying every metric. But when yes, we are. Michigan State is a nine, Northwestern's an eight, talking. Wisconsin's an eight, Michigan's Sticky. a seven, and Wichita taught State is a ten. That doesn't make much sense. Well, the let's only, be intellectually the only, the only, honest here, though, dude. The only big school that I saw that dropped below ten, other than the play in elevens, was Oklahoma State, and they're probably underseeded. There's a rationale to it, even if you don't agree with the rationale, and that's that these teams that have, have better seeds other. have played tougher schedules and have better quality wins. So you can disagree with that, you know, using using that as the, the tool <clears throat> to separate these teams out. I think it's stupid, but at least, you know, there's a rationale for it. Yeah, and the rationale probably argues um, against Gonzaga, too. I mean, the, the name recognition factor for downplaying Gonzaga's track record, I think, is real. The thing that doesn't really make much sense is that you use schedule somehow as a proxy for team quality when the team when the two things don't have anything really to do with each other you know the best team in the country could theoretically just play unbelievably horrible teams that doesn't by virtue of like osmosis of suckitude make them bad and i think you've seen that in the last you know many tournaments that there are teams that don't necessarily have the pedigree and didn't necessarily have the schedule. Um, and I think there should be a tendency rather than the other way around to give the smaller teams, the mid-major teams more of the benefit of the doubt, just because it makes for a more interesting tournament. At least they left stupid Syracuse out this yeah, year. Yeah. Well, 538 aggregated a bunch of the computer rankings Um and back to Wichita State, it's not just like Wichita State is an outlier in Ken Palm. Uh, Wichita State is 11, according to ELO rating. Jeff Sager in 11. Another one had them at 5, 15, 12. So that bias, I think, is real. And the scheduling point that you, that you make, Josh, is a good one. So one of the things that I think has happened, for years they've been telling us, the Cognoscenti, that the mid-majors are now legit. They don't even need to tell us, you know, Butler in the finals and uh, VCU uh, VCU in the final four and George Mason. They don't, they don't, we don't need a smart person to tell us what our brackets are telling us. And yet they don't make the accommodation on the other end. Maybe when they debate bubble, they'll say uh, Northern Illinois versus uh, Providence and they'll take into account the mid-majorness or the lack of schedule with Northern Illinois. And, and by Northern Illinois, I meant Illinois State. It was a hypothetical, but let's put some meat on that hypothetical by acknowledging that Illinois State was one of the uh, one of the ones left out so heartbreakingly. So it's like you have a neighborhood with a set number of houses, and I argue, oh yeah, that, guy, that, that house should be uh, affordable at this level. And the second house, oh yeah, we should have uh, someone else at that level. And once you stock up all the houses... Right. Then it comes time for you to move in. And you're like, wait a minute, all the houses have been filled. So it does seem they start at the top. They start at the power five conferences. They say, here's the teams that could win. And then when it comes time for a Gonzaga, you know, they can't pot. They don't possibly have the mental bandwidth to say they could possibly be as good as a uh, Duke, Kentucky or North Carolina. I, because they haven't played anyone. I don't know. I'm looking at a mock draft. They have this uh, center, Zach Collins, who, you know, is going somewhere around the lottery. He's not even their best player. Their best player is a guard who's a junior who's probably going to go if he leaves somewhere in the second round. I mean, they have legitimate NBA players on the team. It's not like they don't. Well, if you look back at the Butler-Duke national title game, there was supposedly this David and Goliath rematch. Butler had the best player in the game, Gordon Hayward. They also had Shelvin Mack, who's gone on to a long NBA career. Duke had, that was not a very good Duke team. They had some Plumleys. It was an amazing coaching job by uh, Mike Krzyzewski. They were even there and were able to stay in the game, much less win against a more highly talented Butler team. Uh, <laughs> Stefan. Brian Zubek. What about Zubek? He uh, was good. He was very good at missing that free throw at the end intentionally that almost allowed Butler to make the half-court shot to win the tournament. I also find it fascinating um, talking about mental bandwidth. Villanova won the national title last year. They won it on the shot by Chris Jenkins, the three-pointer, one of the best endings uh, of, of any basketball game ever. And they have Jenkins back this year. They have Josh Hart back. They have Jalen Brunson back. They're number one overall seed going into the tournament. They had a great year. And I also don't feel like we have mental bandwidth to account for the fact that Villanova is like this 
great basketball juggernaut. And they're like an East Coast team. They're from a major city. They have a telegenic coach. Um, they have the chance to repeat the first team since Florida. And I just don't feel like anyone gives a shit about Villanova. And my explanation for it is that their TV contract for the Big East is on Fox, which is not CBS, which has the tournament, and it's not ESPN, which basically runs all of sports. And so I just feel like they're like strangely not haven't been talked about all year. Hmm. And no, ha- I dis I disagree. I think that first of all, calling Jay Wright telegenic, that's like calling Paul Ryan a policy wonk. <laughs> you think they've all, gotten as much attention as Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, or UCLA? Never will. Well, those are the three those are the four teams in the world with national brands, right? Those are them. You just name them. So they're never and when they're pretty good, those teams are always going to get more attention. And the ACC is just a bigger uh, conference in terms of everything. Uh, I don't think the amount of television attention really has anything to do with the amount of attention Villanova gets because no one's watching regular season college basketball on television, period. So in the tournament, you know, if he becomes the first team since Florida to win back-to-back, I don't know, maybe Jay Wright will, I, I won't like him to Paul Ryan, but to uh, Billy Donovan. Yeah, maybe uh, it's that they don't have any top NBA prospects either. Well, but I think, Josh, it also might be a function of how old you are, too. I mean, I tend to view Villanova as a major power, maybe because I went to, to college in Philadelphia at a time when Villanova was winning a national championship. So I've always viewed Nova as a national power in the sport. But yes, small school, less name recognition, lesser conference, less TV exposure. That does make sense. What the else? Big East was not a lesser conference. Than no, no, I mean, now. I mean now. I mean now. I mean now. I mean now. No, no, now. I don't think it was a lesser conference than the SEC. But anyway. It is in terms of how much television pop it gets. Um, no, I'm just talking about the rankings of the powers of the conference. Anyway. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retract everything I said about the Ivy League basketball tournament last week. It was awesome. Because um, a six and eight team took the yes, best team to overtime. Absolutely, that made it, awesome. it did make it okay. awesome. They got they got television exposure, which is on ESPN, which is going to expose them to recruits, which will help improve the league. The, the definition were of awesomeness close. is television exposure. The games were close. They were entertaining. They were played in a great arena. They were well covered. It was a smart thing for the Ivy League to do. I apologize, Ivy League. Bring it on again next year. I appreciate that. Apology. I think uh, all of us do. And we should note that Northwestern did, in fact, make the NCAA tournament for the first time in its history, the last power conference team to do so. They'll be playing Vanderbilt in the first round in an incredibly Caucasian Mm. region of the bracket. (laughs) Princeton, also in the Caucasian region. (laughs) What were the other teams that were also involved in that region? You got your uh, uh, Notre Dame, I I think, is in there. Notre Dame is playing Princeton. I believe Jason Alexander's kid (laughs) plays for one of the teams and Newman's kid (laughs) plays for another. (laughs) Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The start of NFL free agency last week brought the usual sorts of deals. Your Alshon Jeffries signing with your Eagles's star cornerback, Stephon Gilmore going to the Patriots, tight end Martellus Bennett going from New England to Green Bay, and so forth. But there is also one deal that was very atypical for pro football. The Houston Texans sent their one-time starting quarterback, Brock Osweiler, who signed a deal for $37 million in guaranteed money before the 2016 season. They sent him to the Cleveland Browns along with the 2017 sixth-round pick and a 2018 second-round pick in exchange for a fourth-rounder in 2017. Given that the Browns got more and better draft picks in addition to getting the player, it's clear that the Texans were essentially bribing the Browns to take the quarterback's contract. By dumping Osweiler, the Texans cleared salary cap space so they can get a new quarterback, possibly uh, Tony Romo. 
while the Browns, who have a bunch of extra cap room they weren't using, were willing to take Osweiler, who they apparently have no interest or intention uh, of keeping, in order to get more draft picks to aid in their rebuilding process. From the Brown side of things, this deal is the handiwork of Paul DePodesta, who came to the NFL for Major League Baseball. He was Billy Bean's number two in Oakland and was played by Jonah Hill in Moneyball. The Browns are terrible and also have a massive number of picks now, 11 in the 2017 draft and another 11 in 2018. Writing in The Ringer, Kevin Clark says the Browns are going full Sam Hinkey referring to the Sixers GM who tanked his NBA team out of contention for years to get great draft picks. But that analogy has its limits, given that the Browns are already terrible and don't have much, if any, talent to dump. Stefan, uh, what do you think of what the Browns are doing here? Well, in football, the only way to get better is to acquire volume, player volume. And the more draft picks you have, the more players you can bring in, the more likely you are that one of them or two of them or five of them will turn into NFL starters. Well, there's another way to get better, which is to acquire at a fantastic quarterback, which if you've seen that jersey that the fan has where it has like the name of every quarterback who started for Mm -hmm. the Browns the last 20 years on it, that strategy has not worked for, for Cleveland. Well, you have to make good draft picks and bring in players that have some potential to succeed, but volume doesn't hurt. Um, look, it's a, it's a game, as we know, where the roster isn't big enough, players get hurt a lot, um, and the odds of success of making it in the NFL are very low. And the just like in the NBA and in Major League Baseball as well, guys who are on their first contracts are massively undervalued and underpaid, and the Seahawks, for example, uh, you know, when they had Russell Wilson as their starting quarterback, making an incredibly small amount of money, mm-hmm. were able to build out their, you know, a Super Bowl winning right. roster by using all of that extra salary cap space. Well, Basically, get, get, the, the whole game here is to figure out a way to acquire a vast quantity of players who are not making the amount of money that their play would warrant. Well, also, we talk about cap. We should be talking about floor. The analogy isn't perfect because you try to get under the cap, but I've not heard anyone talking about climbing up to the floor from the apartment below. Right. There's a minimum amount of money you have to spend. And Cleveland is a hundred million on. They have a hundred million in cap space, which seems to be an opportunity. But since no one wants to go play in Cleveland, they can't even spend the money on actual players. So they just rather throw it away on Brock Osweiler. It's like uh, the government paying the sugar plantations not to plant, so that sugar prices are high. And second round picks are not just a pick; they're seen as the most valuable pick because they're really. And this is just the stu- stupidity of uh, the rule. But since De Podesta knows the rules, um, they're paid pretty low and they perform pretty high. And you could lock up a guy pretty low uh, at a pretty low salary and he becomes really good trade bait. He becomes a really great value. So the weird thing about what Cleveland is doing is that this was all exploitable for so long. And maybe full hinky, the only ana- the analogy is that, you know, the, the NBA knows this. these are the rules of the game. You do a sign and trade. You uh, trade for cap space, like you're not really trading for people, you're trading for slots and salary slots. But I don't know, there's something about the uh, somewhat antiquated NFL where they don't really get it, or at least maybe there's, they always have the one guy who they say is their salary cap guy in the room, but the guy saying that is the GM who also brags about not knowing how to use computers, right? (laughs) And I don't know, I've seen the analogy that the NFL is something like 70% scouts and gut instinct and 30% analytics, and maybe the brand have flipped that a little bit. It seems eminently logical, and I've also heard that the NFL will probably ban deals like this in the future just because it's so exploitable and so logical. Right. It falls into a gray area. Bill Barnwell breaks some of this down on ESPN. He also looks at the the numbers of this trade and whether, in the end, the amount of money that the Browns will end up spending, looking at the sort of the, the layer of of draft picks that are involved here and what they're flopping for what and what they could end up getting in return and whether the expenditure translate to, to, to real value for the number of the level of pick that they'll get in the draft. But the legal question is, 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 a, is a real one. 
but it's also absurd in some ways. The NFL, like the NBA, has created this vastly complex, labyrinthine, Byzantine system of of money spending and contract writing and basically not and basically prevented teams from exploiting it to its fullest. And that's what the Browns are, are trying to do here. And that's just smart. Well, some of it is culture and norms, and some of it is that the NFL's rules are more strict on this than the NBA's. As Barnwell writes, the NFL does not allow teams to straight up trade players for cash. And he actually speculates that the Browns could have gotten more for taking on Osweiler's contract, but they didn't want to To invite the potential wrath of the league office and get them to void the deal. Like, they could have maybe gotten the Texans to send them a first round pick, but they were afraid that the league would would ban trades like this, that they didn't want to push push it that much, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is actually like kind of next level genius that you don't want to exploit the loophole so badly that the loophole gets closed on you. And well, maybe they just didn't want to cl- close retroactively for that deal. Like they said, right. all right, maybe in the future we can't do any deals if we go for a two, but if we get a one, then they'll even take this deal off the table. Well, And the larger story here is can a franchise like the Browns that is this, you know, historically downtrodden uh, team, you know, for decades upon decades, can they turn themselves around by zigging when the league is zagging? And as as Stephen pointed out, this is really the way to do it. And I think, you know, with Theo Epstein and uh, Boston and, Chicago, I think it's a combination of ownership being willing to spend money, but also just you have to just bring in smart people. And you don't really have the sense that the Browns have ever tried that particular tactic before. But look at this trade, too, from the other side. This actually makes sense for the NFL. It frees up Houston by dumping a big salary. It'll allow them to go out and sign a better quarterback, maybe Tony Romo, for a year or two. And it frees up the Browns to improve by capitalizing on the fact that they've been, uh, they haven't been paying players as much as other teams. I don't see how this is a detriment to the NFL. This will make two teams better, allow one franchise that has been an abomination to at least take some strategic road toward improving itself. Let's talk about Washington, where... Uh, General Manager Scott McLuhan was fired. He, um, at least my sense, was that he improved the roster there. Um, You know, there seems to have been some extreme mishandling of the quarterback situation with Kirk Cousins now demanding a trade. They maybe should have locked him up and paid him more a couple years ago rather than uh, now having to either decide to pay him millions upon tens of millions of dollars or dump him. But anyway, better roster than when McLuhan took over. But um, according to a story in the Washington Post, which was sourced anonymously, um, he's had multiple relapses due to alcohol. That's what an anonymous official said. He showed up in the locker room drunk on multiple occasions. This has been a disaster for 18 months. Uh, It was known, it was discussed publicly that McLuhan had issues with alcohol before he took the job. And the Post has been criticized pretty vociferously and pretty unanimously for allowing uh, Dan Snyder's team and flunkies to slag the guy anonymously as they're getting rid of him. Uh, Stefan, what did you think of the Post story and the criticism of it? I think the Post certainly enabled someone inside the Washington football organization, maybe it was the president, maybe it was the owner, we don't know, um, to slander this guy. And that was despicable. The Post probably could have done a better job of immediately countering those quotations by saying no evidence or talking to other people or making a a, a stronger effort to speak with a, a McLuhan associate or McLuhan himself. Yeah, it's fine to include the quotations, right? I, yeah, I didn't as, have a problem with that As either. long as you contextualize them and explain to readers what is going on here. Or maybe you paraphrase <laughs> the quotations too. And the team put out a statement, as Deadspin noted, something like 10 minutes before the story came out saying that they would have no comment on the situation. And there are obviously only a very few people within the organization who would feel empowered, whether it's Tony Wiley or um, the longtime spokesman, mm-hmm. Snyder cons- Consigliere, or Bruce Allen, the you know another longtime Snyder henchman, 
um, who would feel empowered to give these quotes. And so it's just that statement by the team that they're not going to comment is obviously inaccurate and duplicitous. They seem to also have, just in football terms, lost the offseason, and they're doing whatever they can with their uh, media machinations to try to shift the stink. And it's pretty, uh, before putting aside the Washington Post rolling it, the uh, Washington brass rolling it, it's just eh, borderline, it's definitely unethical. You know, it gets to uh, a borderline evil place, but it's evil. What is what is that phrase that Ben Wittes used? Malevolence tempered by incompetence. There you go. Mm-hmm. That that's your that's your uh, slogan for Washington football. And if the guy, I mean, the guy has documented issues with alcohol. Mike Wise was writing about how the culture with the team is also like not a place. Uh, it's a frat would be, culture. That would be friendly to somebody. Refrigerators filled with, with Coors alcohol. Light. So just as like a human, uh, you know, if if we're thinking of this less as an organizational decision and more as a series of decisions made by people about another person, it's just inhumane if we're, we stipulate and I maybe we shouldn't stipulate that it's true. But if McLuhan is leaving the organization because of issues with alcohol, just like how awful is it that he's being treated in this way? And it seems like a motivation here would be um, just to maybe there's you know financial reasons that the team is getting rid of him in this way, or maybe it's just because they want the as Mike said the stink to you know go with McLuhan. It's obviously not working. They want to look good. It's impossible for them to take the high road. They also know they have their, like uh, like the Corleones talking about, who do we have in the press? They know, if you know you have the Washington Post and they'll take your anonymous quotes I, and you're also bereft of, uh, uh, devoid of ethics, then yeah, it's tempting to make this seem like a good move and you had to do it. And you know, I bet a lot of the, we're reacting one way, but I bet a lot of the callers on the team or whatever, Washington Sports Talk Radio are just like, well, the guys are drunk, you got to get rid of them. It makes sense now. So maybe to their core audience, uh, it all played out and they don't care if the ombudsman for the Washington Post tisks their fingers at him. I'd like to know what efforts Look, this organization has not exactly covered itself in glory for the last 20 years, both in terms of the performance of the front office and the team on the field, um, its relationship with fans, its relationship with the media. I mean, they're pretty much a disgrace. And two things. One, I'd like to know what efforts the organization made, the franchise, the team made to help this guy if he needed help. And two, where's the league? Where are leagues when... Teams, you know, one thirtieth or one thirty second of your business behaves in a reprehensible manner. Where are the leagues to step in and get rid of or put pressure on your Snyders or your Jim Dolans? Why doesn't that happen more often? And why, rather than having the NFL be embarrassed by the behavior of Dan Snyder and his his uh, toadies, why don't they do something about it? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Over the weekend in Minnesota, the Grand Rapids Thunderhawks beat the Moorhead Spuds and their beloved mascot Spuddy 6-3 to to win the Class 2A state title in the sport of ice hockey, while Hermantown's Dylan Samberg scored a goal in double OT to lead his team past Monticello, Annandale, Maple Lake, which is apparently a three-team cooperative. But before we veer off into afterball territory, let me stop myself and say that Minnesota State High School Hockey Tournament has a rabid following in Minnesota, parenthetically, bringing in more than 100,000 fans annually around the nation and around the world, though. It is increasingly best known as the source of the all-hockey hair team. That team gets introduced each year in a YouTube video that displays the tonsorial feats of the North Star State's premier pre-collegiate hockey talent. Here's an excerpt from this year's highlight reel. 
Our list starts with Tommy from the Champs, who reminds us long hair don't care as he catches the wind just right. They say life is a series of ebbs and flows. Well, Nick from Eden Prairie hasn't seen an ebb in quite a while. Hmm. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> you want to go, Mike? Go ahead. Uh, the, the, the number of flow puns in this guy. You can't slow his flow puns. Ah, oh, it's glorious. It's just glorious. And it's just antithetical to uh, so much that is tamped down in the world of sport, to wit, Yankee redheads uh, getting their tresses chopped. Which happened last week, Mike. Yes, the Yankees forced the... Uh, gosh, that guy has awesome hair. Clint Frazier. Had, 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 tense. had cut his hair because the Yankees operate under some weird 1980s. Steinbrennerian code. Um, hockey, Minnesota. Look, hockey and hair, as John King, who's an ad executive who created the all hockey hair team a few years back, notes, go together. I mean, hockey and hair are very important culturally in Minnesota. So his, his lifting up and, and showing the world this beautiful culture is, uh, is, is really a, a, a benefit to all mankind, I'd like to say. Mm -hmm. But what I love about this guy is his turns of phrase. And I think we should listen to a few more. I was looking at the 2016 video, I think, was the highest art form. I think it was really his Academy Award um, nominee. Um, and my favorite phrase. Your nominees this year are a movie about the Holocaust, a movie about a genocide, and Minnesota hockey hair. Yeah. You want, I like, I, I was going to say, my favorite turn of phrase from this guy was uh, Cato got the croutons out of the box. Cato West got the croutons out of the box with this victory lap to start. Look at this so guy. the tournament is broadcast on local television in Minnesota. And part of the tradition is that before each of these teams plays, they have each of the players skate to the camera. And I think this is a tradition just created by the players. I don't think that they were instructed to do this by the local television producers they you know don't have their helmets on and they kind of like twirl their hair around and this guy john king started taping the broadcast off of tv and so the videos on youtube have very low production qualities it is literally a guy filming his television and compiling it on youtube it is a very lo-fi uh yet delightful event but the fact that he's an ad executive made me wonder if this is all way more calculated than we think it is. How authentic, Mike, do you think these hockey hair videos? Are we just falling into John King's devilish trap? N devilish neutral zone trap, as it were. I don't think they were faked, but I think like uh, I think that that the uh, it, subjects of the experiment are aware that the experiment <laughs> is going on. Yeah. And they perhaps oh, yeah. play to the experiment. The thumb was on the scale. The Hawthorne effect is being noted. I forget if it's Schrodinger's cat or the Heisenberg principle, but one of those is definitely mm -hmm. at play. <laughs> oh, and then the kids admit that. They they get it. They want their they want their their cameo in John King's video every year. The concern I have is that we have reached peak hair in hockey, in Minnesota hockey. This year's video, I felt like John's heart wasn't into it quite as much. And he did seem to lament that the, the hairstylings are not, the flow is not as generous as it was. So I think maybe his exposure, and this is a guy that doesn't apparently talk to the media very much. The Wall Street Journal did um, a piece last week about some faux controversy surrounding King's video. Highly faux. Highly faux. Some executives of the Minnesota High School Hockey Association or whatever complained that it was a distraction, which is just great on its own. Certainly, I would have concerns that a player is thinking about things other than the game. <laughs> 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 oh, also, this has nothing, to, absolutely nothing to do with our tournament. It's a guy who's sitting in his living room taking photos off his TV set. Well, that is, a, that is accurate. <laughs> yeah. I have no, I have no quibble with, uh, with that analysis of what's going on here so yeah. i, I want lo-fi nature of it makes it seem like yeah. outsider art a little bit like this could air in a museum <laughs> so i wonder Visionary whether art, whether yeah. the exposure maybe has uh has, has peaked here uh there was an espn piece about about the video um starring uh barry melrose mr hair himself mr mullet barry melrose who's who's participated in previous 
Minnesota hockey hair video. So he the, he appreciates the aesthetic. And this guy, John King, even got some NHL players to, to say little one-liners that he's spliced into the video. And it adds to that amateur quality, but maybe it's, uh, it's peaked a little bit. Maybe he wouldn't talk to the Wall Street Journal, didn't seem to respond to us. We wanted to get him on this show. Wow. Mm. Calling us out. Calling, calling us out for failing to get John King. I appreciate the brutal honesty. So I think that the people from the Minnesota Hockey Tournament who are complaining about these videos – feel like they're auditioning for a reboot of Footloose. Like, I haven't, I haven't heard uh, this much uh, misplaced tut-tutting since uh, Kevin Bacon was uh, cutting a rug circa the mid-1980s. Let the kids have hair. That's what I they're say. They're not going to have hair forever. That is definitely true. As we can, all three of us, attest. Our flow is not what it once was. Yeah, I'm holding out for a hero. I think there's no better place to end than there. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So for After Balls, I was thinking about going back to that Monticello, Annandale, Maple Lake three-team cooperative mm-hmm. because uh, they play at Moose Sherritt Ice Arena. Who? What could you tell me about this, this Moose Sherritt Ice Arena? So I'm on the website, moosearena.com. And according to the little Facebook uh, widget on the right side of of the page, I would be the first of my friends on Facebook to like the Moose Arena. So I'm very disappointed in my so-called friends. I can tell you that the 3 by 3 Squirt and Pee Wee League was canceled on Saturday, March 11th, as well as the might season-ending party, which was done to let the hockey community support the Moose at the state tourney, go moose. Mike, what is your the moose? moose. <laughs> what is your is moose, moose share at Ice Arena? Well, I think we have found in Cody Decker, a player on the Israel national team, the baseball humorist who we could say might even be funny absent the fact that we're pinching ourselves that he's a professional athlete cracking jokes. You know, the Shaq effect. Although maybe if a seven foot one, 300 whatever pound dude were trying that hard to be funny, we'd all laugh. Even if the guy had never picked up a uh, basketball or even if he had uh, and turned out he was good at f- foul shooting. This is my hypothetical Shaq not playing basketball. Maybe he'd be a good foul shooter. So Cody Decker is the guy who is either the keeper of the mensch on the bench or the inventor of the mensch on the bench. The mensch on the bench is this big rabbi, although some will note that he could just be any sort of uh, Orthodox Jew, doesn't have to be a Rebbe. Mensch, it says, means person of integrity or honor in Yiddish. I think it just means man. But the mensch has been on the bench. And as we were talking in our pregame banter, this is not like a little plush doll mascot. This is a full-fledged, there's no human inhabiting the suit, but they could. It's that size. It's as if the Philadelphia Phillies allowed the fanatic to sit with them on the bench or a stuffed fanatic, though unmanned outfit. Decker says that the mascot uh, who has his own locker He's a mascot, he's a friend, he's a teammate, he's a borderline deity to our team. He has his own locker. We even gave him Manischewitz, Gelt, and Gefilte fish. And then he gets mystical. He is everywhere and nowhere at once. His actual location is irrelevant because he exists in higher metaphysical planes. That's good. So that's Decker, who's a first baseman, though he sometimes comes out for defensive reasons for the Israel national team. Decker, when I looked him up, has more minor league hats. And this sometimes happens. But man, does the guy have a lot of minor league hats. He played for the uh, El Paso Chihuahuas. He played for the... uh, Lake Elsinore Storm. He played for the Portland Sea Dogs, double A affiliate of the Red Sox. His baseball cube minor league teams include the the uh, looks like the Arizona League Padres, Fort Wayne Elsinore, San Antonio, Tucson, 
El Paso, Portland, and Omaha and Albuquerque, as he is now with the Kansas City Royals. This guy was great in college. He led the Pac-10 in home runs. He actually beat out Mike Trout for naming uh, the Arizona League's most valuable player. He had some injuries, but you would think a guy with his resume would be a successful major leaguer, or maybe not. He was drafted in the 20... So he has this great college career. He's like all Pac-10... Uh, twice. Then he's drafted in the 22nd round. So you're like, oh, maybe they underestimate him, but maybe they know something. He sticks around the minor leagues for a long, long time. Though he has made it to the minor leagues. He signed with the Royals in uh, 2015. He was traded to the Rockies in 2016. And I believe at the time he made his major league debut, he had played or had more home runs in the minor leagues than anyone else. He's also made some funny videos, including one where he convinced Jeff Francoeur that their teammate was deaf. That was a pretty funny YouTube video. He has follow-through. He has game. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Mike. Stefan, what is your moose share at Ice Arena? Well, Mike, earlier you mentioned Illinois State's disappointment at being left out of the men's NCAA basketball tournament, but they are more than represented in another annual bracket. Illinois State football recruit Kobe Buffalo Meat is the overall number one seed for the 2017 Name of the Year tournament. On Twitter, Andy Staples, that Andy Staples, sports writer Andy Staples, calls Buffalo Meat the stone-cold lock of the millennium. And now while NCAA honchos don't like to talk about the selection process, I am here to openly discuss with you both how the Name of the Year bracket comes together. And that, of course, is because I'm one of the founders of Name of the Year way back when I was an undergraduate. This is Nodi XXX. This is, yes, the 30th name of the year competition. Wow. The committee met Have recently. Have we disclosed this? Is this known to the public? It uh, is. I think we mentioned it on the show last year. It might have been in a bonus segment, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This might be yeah. the first time it's coming to, direct, to network television. I think after right, 30 years. Leaping the firewall. I think after 30 years, it was time. So I've got the, we've released the number one seeds, Kobe Buffalo Meat, Marmaduke Treblecock, Chardonnay Pantastico. <laughs> and Quindarius Monday, but I'm, I'm open now. This is your chance to learn more about how the name of the year committee, the selection committee, operates. So my first, um, the thing that jumped out to me when looking at this bracket was that I just can't believe that Wichita State is a 10 seed. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I thought the Sithole region was really stacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the... 116 is Marmaduke uh, Treblecock. Versus 19th, 19th century uh, lawyer. Versus Magic Eureka. And then if you just go on down the list, you've got Tony Orlandoni, Subu Doobie, Hella Jungarius, Disarulian Stylo, Dick Posthumus, Naquez Pringle, Dr. Prospero, Gogo Bumperpool, Farage Fardass, Cinnamon Danube, Heavenly Joy Jerkins, Tug Snowbarger, and Fortunate Sithole, and Waylane September. I mean, mm-hmm. A little, little inside the committee meeting, you got Fortunate Siddle, Farage Fardas, and Dick Posthumus. Now, there's a reason they're all in there. The people, the public, the voting public tends to go for the scatological names. So we put them in one bracket. We didn't want to make a mess of the final four. I've always had problems with the, the Siddle because it's really pronounced Sitole. It's a South African name. But fortunately, well, didn't Tokyo Sex Whale once win this thing? He's another one. Yes, that was also part. That, we call cis, that we call that the uh, we call that the sit hole doctrine in in name mm-hmm. of the year, which is it's the the dispute over pronunciation of foreign now, what names. What about what about Native American names? Mm-hmm. Like not making fun of them? Are any are, are the is buffalo meat in that category? Um, well, is we are senior, very sensitive. We are meat? we are very sensitive inside the committee about whether we are exploiting people's names. And sure, name of the year pokes fun. You're sensitive. You don't stop. We don't stop. We're so bad about it. We're so bad about it. You laugh laugh about it. We do try to make sure that everybody is a public figure. Um, Kobe Buffalo Meat was on Jimmy Kimmel talking about Kobe Buffalo Meat. He was named for Kobe Bryant. Um, And the Buffalo Meat is uh, indeed a Native American name, yeah. Mm. Um, All right. Mike, you, you've He's got the Illinois State football recruit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got the uh, the bracket. Yeah. What uh, What do you think about the Dragon Wagon region? Maybe the Crotch Tangle region. 
I will tell you, there are a couple, I, I, I question the seeding. Obviously, Marmaduke Treblecock, I mean, but as, as a 16 seed, Magic Eureka? Um, here's one that I, for a second, said, well, I don't even understand what's funny about that. Uh, I go to the Dragon Wagon Week. <laughs> I go to <laughs> name the Dragon for, Wagon. Name, name for children's Again. book author, Crescent Dragon Wagon. <laughs> I go to the Dragon Wagon region, uh, the four versus 13 seed. Chitty, <laughs> God, <laughs> Kitty Chiller is playing Christian Jew. Now, when I say it, you heard it. He said, ah, Christian Jew. But just looking at the word Christian, J-O-O, you're like, well, I don't get it. Oh, and then Christian Jew. What did I laugh out? I laughed out loud at Christian Jew. I laughed out loud at Andy, Andy Brandy, <laughs> Grandy, the fourth. And isn't there a Tony? Orlandoni. Wait, a Tony, Tony yeah, Orlandoni. Tony Orlandoni. I'm, I'm the sucker for Tony Orlandoni. Mm-hmm. Bird love God. He's out of the crotch tangle region. The Roman and numerals is, also add at least like a 20% kicker on how funny a name is. Well, I tend to, we tend to like uh, some punctuation. And juniors and thirds are also very, very, uh, g- and, you know, and, and courtesy titles. Your doctors, doctors always crack yeah. me up. I mean, my favorite There's... doctor of all time is Dr. S- Dr. Jihad Slim. He's a former nominee. H. King Buttermore, pretty funny. H. King Buttermore the third, that's better. Mm-hmm. Do you know the stories like uh, Mr. and Mrs. John Garius? How they go with Hella? Uh, we have uh, there's a next generation of Name of the Year committee members. A couple of guys from Northwestern that were in love with Name of the Year, and there was a, a year in there where we couldn't get our act together to put a bracket together, and they did it themselves. And we have brought them in. They are the forces now behind culling the 300 or so nominees that uh, we received over the course of the year at Name of the Year at Gmail dot com. Hella, and so they do. Hella. Yeah, so these guys did yeah. go through every one of these assembled links. We try to minimize totally private citizens. Phone books are out. Um, so if you've been in a news story, though, it's, yeah. uh, it's usually qualifies you. Hila Jungarius, a Dutch designer. You probably know her from the Jungarius Lab. What's the Jungarius Slab? Oh, yeah. It's the <laughs> Jungarius Lab. Uh, all right. So best of luck to Clapperton Mavunga, to Naquez Pringle, to Free Balbona. Don't forget Aphro- Aphrodite Bodycomb. To Taco Dibbets. <laughs> Sultan McDoom. All right, last question, then we'll move on. Are there any names this year that you feel like are going to become immortal, like your Boltrons, your Sitholes, your yeah. Dragon Wagons, your Crotch Tangles? I think Kobe Buffalo Meat. I agree with Andy Staples. I mean, I think Kobe Buffalo Meat and Chardonnay Pantastico are destined for greatness. Chardonnay Pantastico is a softball recruit at the University of Hawaii. What about Marmaduke Treblecock? And she reminds me of former name of the year, I think 2008, Destiny Frankenstein, who was also a softball player at the University of Kansas. So there's some legacy there in the sport. Both of these names have got it going both ways. First name, last name. You got some humor. You got some contradiction. Good backstory. These are strong, strong, classic name of the year candidates. Yes. Public figures like Aphrodite Bodycomb, 37 Twitter followers. Total public <laughs> figure. <laughs> Josh, what's your Moose Sherrett Ice Arena? Mario Gutze and Marco Royce both play for the German national soccer team and the club Borussia Dortmund, where they are blessed to be teammates with 18-year-old American soccer savior Christian Pulisic, who just scored in Dortmund's recent Champions League win over Benfica. But we're talking about Mario Gutze and Marco Royce, who are best friends. When Gutze scored the goal to lead Germany to victory in the 2014 World Cup final, he held up Royce's jersey during the postgame celebration as his compatriot had been forced to miss the tournament after being felled by an ankle injury. In an interview with GQ, the two discussed their mutual love of Justin Bieber. To be clear, this is a foreign GQ. When we met at the national team, our chemistry was perfect, said Marco. We listen to the same music. That helps, but it is not that important. Mario added, we already spend extremely much time together because of our jobs. It's obvious that it's getting very fast, very intensive when you get along well with each other. So according to Wikipedia, Royce is dating a German model, whereas Goethe is dating a German lingerie model. Yeah, you got to mix it up. Well, is the first one more versatile and the second one's just in her little niche? I don't know. She's an expert. She's a specialist. Okay. So their relationship, though, is so intense 
that there is a Benefer-esque portmanteau blended name for it. Gutzois, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, G-O-T-Z-E-U-S. Gutzois. It's also intensive enough that the uh, Royce-Gertze combo is the most frequently documented soccer relationship on Archive of Our Own, a fan-created, fan-run, non-profit, non-commercial archive for transformative fan works like fan fiction, fan art, fan videos, and podfic. Meaning, translation, Mario Goetze and Marco Royce are frequently the subject 133 times, in fact, of erotic fan fiction. Whoa. So I uh, have some of my favorite descriptions of the stories. These are little teasers that appear on the front page of the site. I'm going to read through a few of them now. Uh, Mike, would you mind uh, dimming the lights, please? Yeah. All right. Welcome to After Balls After Dark. Mario works as a physiotherapist at Borussia Dortmund. There. Oh, yeah. He met Marco when they fell in love. They have been together for a few months now and are living together. But, of course, there is always bound to be new problems and also some very happy moments. Story number two. Mario feels a shiver run through him and he looks at the ground. Now we're talking. (laughs) Mario feels a shiver run through him and he looks at the ground and bites hard on his lip to keep from doing something stupid like calling out to Marco. Just because they got lost in the moment and celebrated Marco's goal together doesn't mean they're on speaking terms again. Mario is wearing jeans and a button down when he opens the door, carefully styled and so obviously looking to still go out, despite the fact that it's almost 2 a.m. His eyebrows nearly rise to his hairline when he spots Marco. Happy birthday. Can I do one? Indeed. (laughs) Go ahead, Stefan. Marco has a crush on Mario, and soon he discovers that it's way more than just a crush at that pub, whilst Marcel sings like a virgin at the top of his lungs, thunder being louder than him. And even under that thunderstorm, Mario's smile still illuminates everything, looking straight into his eyes, his hand resting on Marco's thigh. Touched for the very first time. <laughs> it gets into like some strange territory. Here's, here's some, one that yeah. I found a little confusing. <laughs> Haley has reached the terrible twos. Maybe not a great time to find out Mario is pregnant with Marco's second child. Oh, okay. Whatever floats your whatever floats your uh, German boat. Das boat. All right, two more. Marco and Mario are finally spending their first Christmas together, and Marco wants to do everything he can to make it perfect for Mario. But has he listened to what Mario really wants? And will Marco and Mario be able to save their Christmas? This is like becoming a downer Showtime series. Come on. <laughs> Bring the heat, fanfic people. Mario, the son of an important earl, has caused the death of Marco, a young servant. It wasn't intentional, but Mario considers himself a murderer and atones for what he has done in a very cruel way. I wonder if something's lost in translation from the German. Will Robert, Earl of Lindelborn, be able to save him? That's Robert yes. Lewandowski. These are written in English, Stephen. You yeah, sure? Erotic, erotica normally uh, improves so much when in <laughs> German. Fleistensteinen! <laughs> um, just been debating this whole time whether to make a, a Die Mannschaft uh, joke. What do you no. think, Stefan? Sure. Some would say you had it both ways with that question, but... Some would say, but did I? Will mm. I save Christmas? Find out on this, the next episode of Hang Up and Listen. Do we know how Mario feels about it and Marco? He feels simultaneously titillated yet confused. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.
Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.